Have you ever found comfort in going to sleep in the center of a spider's web with your legs loosely wrapped in spider silk and your small claymation jacket spread atop you, having been kissed upon the forehead by a French spider played by Susan Sarandon? Can't, can't say that I have. Again, when you say things in this, like, systematic, like, just matter-of-fact I... sentence, it, it really sounds insane. When I say out loud the things that happen the way they happen in the movie James and the Giant Peach on this show, City Wave Cinema, with me, James, and you, America, it sounds fucking crazy. Is that what you're saying to me right now? Is that it sounds fucking crazy? Yes, I'm also saying that's probably the best intro we've ever done. <laughs> Thank you. This movie is a stain upon me. I had to recover from the last one. I was crying. You were in tears. What have they done to you? I wasn't ready for... Okay, I did say this off uh, recording, but I do want to reiterate it. That I can somewhat understand where James is coming from because I mentioned... I think I've mentioned in the episode before this and this episode... Or and this movie before this that... um. I do have certain traumatic associations with James and the Giant Peach from my childhood where there are, like, images that have been burned into my skull that I can't... That have, like, withstood the test of time and are very still, like, jarring images to my brain. One of them is the rhinoceros cloud. Um, one of them is the bag of crocodile tongues. Like, they're very visceral images that terrify me to this day from this movie. So, honestly... I understand a little bit where James is coming from, but also, I was not expecting this movie to have this much of an effect on you, and I'm concerned in, you should be. in more ways than one. You should be. So, they, uh... Well, welcome back to hell. Yeah, we they all went to sleep. After we all got shit-faced on the peach beer made by Stompy Grasshopper Feet, And ate the drywall of the house. Everyone goes to sleep. Mm -hmm. And they wake up in hell. Quite the opposite of hell, actually. My, my personal hell. Oh, it is your A personal A frozen hell. wasteland. Yeah. They wake up covered in snow. As they are flying through what I can only describe as the Arctic Circle, but where pirates go to die. As they, well, James climbs up to observe why there's snow on his face from the inside of the peach. And he looks about and the seagulls are half frozen solid, but still maintaining a flight. And as he looks, there are many icebergs and frozen chunks of ice about, as well as the masts of sunken vessels, ships made of wood, in this a time where there are metal cars, a la the early 1900s. And they get mad at the centipede because he said he knew how to fly. And he knew how to navigate. 
but he was very clearly a liar. Uh, to be fair, I feel like that whole argument is a little... Like, I feel like they should have been arguing over the fact that he fell asleep. Because he was doing a fine job navigating before he was unconscious. Like, at least to their knowledge. That's not clear. Okay. Anyways, a small scuffle breaks out. And then it is decided that they must find a way to navigate. And the way they must navigate is via a compass. However, this they do not have. So what's the plan now? Oh, it's so simple. <laughs> the centipede will jump into the frozen water, find a pirate ship, and obtain a compass. Who's holding the compass, James? Oh, we're gonna get there! Okay! So after a fight where he finally grows a conscious... A, con a conscience? A conscience! And decides that he needs to right this wrong, he just jumps off the peach! Which is apparently in hover mode. And disappears into the water. Surrounded by chunks of ice and icebergs and sunken pirate ships. Now James doesn't like this one bit. No, sir, he does not. He thinks the centipede, who is the size of a man, is his friend. When really, he's just a cranky man from Brooklyn. They're all friends, James. They're all family. So he and the spider, <laughs> the French spider, played by Susan Sarandon, use some spider silk as a safety rope and go after him into the frozen water in a sequence that will ignore how anything works. Yeah, I, I'll give you that one. This one has... Because first of all, everyone can breathe in the underwater pirate battle. And also, everyone can speak clearly to each other in the underwater pirate battle. And also... No one freezes to death? No one freezes to death. And there's ghosts. And also... The Pumpkin King. Who, after moonlighting as Santa for a moment, dies in a horrible sleigh crash, <laughs> doesn't die, and becomes a pirate captain. <laughs> and, without moving, manages to get a hold of the centipede suspenders. After the centipede prized the compass from Jack Actual Skellington's cold, literally, dead, so, so literally, fingers. 
He's made of bones and angst. <laughs> and now the centipede man is trapped underwater in no, maybe, actual danger. Because I don't know about you, but when I see people go underwater in the Arctic waters, I don't think that the danger that they'll be facing is going to come from ghost pirates on a ship surrounded by also Jack Skellington and Donald Duck. I mean, if we if we refer to the rules of threes, you can come back to that Donald Duck in a minute. If you refer to the rules of threes, it's three minutes without air, like oxygen, and three hours without heat. So... They are underwater for like five minutes. Well, okay, the centipede's underwater for like five minutes. I feel like it's longer than that. Who knows? Because guess what? They capture him like it's nothing. And then they actual torture. They just do actual torture. You know the stretching rack? The medieval torture device? Well, they make their own. By tying his top wrists, because he has, like, 50 wrists, to one crank wheel, and then his leg wrists. Those are called ankles? I don't know. He's a centipede. He has a million arms that are also legs, functionally. Technically only a hundred. Cent is a hundred. Otherwise, he'd be a millipede. In the movie, he's got, like, 20 arms total. He's not even a real centipede. He's not even played by a centipede, bro. His claymation model isn't even accurate to the lore, bro. Okay? Get out of here with your real bug facts. We're in hell. Those aren't facts here. What the fuck? So they're stretching him and they're popping all the kinks out of his back as he notes one of them actually feels real good. I was kind of thinking, I was like, maybe I should try that. People yank on me from two different ends and maybe my spine will fix itself. Oh my God, no. <laughs> so... The whole time, I just want Jack Skellington to speak and have the voice of Jack Skellington, but all he does is have a disembodied howl. That sort of sounds like... I'm sorry for everyone that had to hear I'm that. I'm not suck a dick. So... They knew what they were signing up for. Did they? Because I didn't. <laughs> I'm sorry, did you not watch the drug movie with me? I watched it, but I don't think we watched the same movie. I had a religious experience in not a nice way. <laughs> James had a come to Jesus moment. <laughs> nope, it wasn't Jesus. I know him, he and I are friends. Okay. Now, the French spider played by Susan Sarandon and Claymation Jimbo over there. <laughs> embark on a rescue mission in which Jimbo has to tackle the Viking pirate who is going to cut off our Brooklyn centipede's head with an axe. And they engage in 
combat as well as a retrieve the compass mission in which they will fight Jack Actual Skellington, a Viking pirate, an Eskimo, because it wasn't taboo to have an Eskimo, and also Donald Duck from, like, the 1930s, before he was short and fat and didn't cast healing on you ever. This was like original Donald Duck, who didn't have a voice and just looked like an asshole. But also, he's just a skeleton. And it's underwater, and they can talk to each other. Every time, every time you say it. I'm going to do the rest of the movie like that, because everything that happens is bullshit. (laughs) And nothing will be explained. And this is all because a strange man who appeared from nowhere and can teleport gave Jack James a bag of green animated squiggles and called them magic. You sound like a South Park character. I feel like I'm in an episode. (laughs) I feel like if South Park wrote Roger Ebert, I'm him! Who's Roger Ebert? One of the most famous movie critics there ever was. Okay. Now! Uh They escape! But not without the centipede making the ultimate sacrifice. And what we could only imagine is being killing himself to save his friends and the compass. But then he appears with shoulder pauldrons, a sword, and a new hat. He took Jack's hat. Yes. Which begs the question, how did they capture him so easily earlier when he could straight up whip everybody's ass He also as soon as the camera goes away? He also took Jack's arm. He's not very nice to Jack actual Skellington. So, we get the compass, and now we're cruising on our way to New York City. And along the way, guess who they leave in charge of the Night Watch? It's once again, the centipede man, who has redeemed himself in the eyes of his comrades. But once again, having to stay on watch all night because these people clearly do not know how to stagger their watches. Starts to fall asleep at the wheel, helm, stem, unclear. They use the stem of the peach to guide the birds. But I'm still not sure how any of it works. All right. So. The grasshopper comes to relieve the centipede. Hopefully, so that they don't have another oops, we're in the Arctic Circle moment. And the grasshopper starts playing the violin with two bows because he has multiple arms, as do most of the insects. And then we have a brief musical interlude where nothing of consequence occurs. Other than a little bit of, ah, we're friends now, yeah. 
Is this not the We're Family song? Well, that's coming up because I have a note and it says, quote for quote, frankly, it's a little upsetting how James has only known the bugs for a few days and now they have adopted him as a member of their little strange family. Okay. I mean, as far as we know, we don't know how much time passed between when they left England and when they started to starve to death because they don't show the passage of time, but they have shown exactly one night. Two. They're in the middle of the second night. Yes. So they have completed one night. And had a brief moment in the Arctic. Yes. And now they're almost to New York. Yes. I don't know if you know how far away England is, but I don't think they used the Godzilla universe hollow earth wormholes to traverse the entire Atlantic Ocean at a time where the Titanic barely made it out the gates. They just flew On a trip that was going to take them a fucking month, by the way. They just flew over it. Oh, sure. The power of a hundred seagulls who never stop flying. Who don't need to eat or sleep or drink, apparently. Can take the house-sized peach full of six anthropomorphic human-sized bugs and one child-sized claymation boy... To New York City. Yep. Right. Anyway. Uh, they have a nice little thing about how they're a family, and then they're in the clouds, and then the clouds part. And bada-bing, bada-boom, it's New York City. It's just below them. They've done it. They've made it. Oh, no. What's happening? Oh, oh. God, help us all. It's wind. Oh, no. And even worse than that, it's a sky rhinoceros. It's back to kill James. It got its parents and it wants him too. Man, you know, gotta respect the hustle, the determination. Like, he's like, I left this job unfinished. I need to fucking finish it. And would you like to know how James bests the sky rhinoceros? About as easily as the kids in It best Pennywise. He said, fuck you. Said, I'm not afraid of you anymore. That's basically what they did in fucking It. Stephen King is a hack. The Losers Club just said, I'm not scared of you anymore. And It died. The sky rhinoceros. Every time I say it, I sound more insane. The sky rhinoceros, made of clouds, lightning, and faint roaring, is dissipated by James screeching into the night that he fears nothing anymore. Why? We don't know. He took his parents' advice and looked at it a different way. Only after the worm reminded him. Let's not forget a moment I've neglected to mention in that James advises the worm who is blind to look at situations, look at situations in a different way. Mm-hmm. 
That's like asking the deaf person if they can hear you good. Way to go, asshole! He's trying to be a good friend. He's a child. He gets slack, okay? Now. Uh-huh. I couldn't believe anything that was happening. So I don't know how the seagulls got cut off from the peach. By the sky rhinoceros. I'm still not sure it's real. But then again, I'm not sure anything has been real since we started the movie on Disney+. Plus. Um, James and the Peach fall. Yes. But James somehow, in free fall, from outside the peach, gets inside the peach. He falls through the hole in the top. Sure. And the peach impales itself on the Empire State Building. But does not impale James. Well, he's so small, the tip of the top of the lightning rod on the Empire State Building would probably just fracture all of his bones rather than pierce his body because it's round on top, not spiked. So he'd probably bounce with a sickening crunch as every bit of bone in him turned to dust and his organs to jelly. But he once again survives. But instead, he's on the inside of the peach, so he just sort of bounces around some fruit that's his home and also food source. Um, so now he crawls out of the peach and becomes a real boy again. Because the worm leaps out of his body, the squiggle. Because the... he has a cough and the magic leaves him. And he crawls out of the peach, and he is then higher than anything else in New York City. But he thinks he's not in New York City, briefly. Because he can't see the Empire State Building, because the peach is so damn big, he can't see below him to see the fact that he is on a small house on top of the Empire State Building. The peach dribbles some goo, which hits a policeman who goes to a police phone box. After the little girl tells him there's a boy up there. And tells them to send everybody because they have a situation. And it looks like a peach. And so they get the biggest crane in New York City. Comically big. To lift the peach off of the Empire State Building and set it on the back of a flatbed truck with James and a fireman still upon it. Yep. And then the firemen, who are from the ground, climb a ladder onto the peach, get the boy down, and as soon as he tries to start explaining how he came to be on a house-sized peach on top of the Empire State Building. The most insane thing in the movie happens. The most unforced error in storytelling history occurs. The Park Knight is better than this movie. 
For reference, that's the movie that James and I made together in college. At least the story made sense. No, the story has a, a basis in science. The science of head trauma. Yeah, kind of. Listen, we twist the rules on how medicine works. Yeah, just hit the person that has amnesia in the head again and they'll remember everything. The Uber driver is not a smart man. Also, if you get One am- could argue he's just very lucky. Also, if you get amnesia while you're in a costume, you wake up and think you're the person who you're dressed as, even though you wouldn't remember who that is. Does that sound more insane than drinking peach beer made by grasshopper feet made from the walls of the house that you're living in? That is being flown across the Atlantic Ocean by 100 seagulls tied to the stem of the house that is a peach by spider silk? No. No, it does not sound more crazy. Guess who shows up at the end of the movie? It's the ants who drive up in their destroyed Cruella DeVille ass coop full of seawater, seaweed, and hate. And it is not explained how they are here. And not even a child would look at that and go, oh yeah, they're here now. I mean, clearly they drove from England through the ocean to New York. That's why their car is filled with water and seaweed, and that's why they're all soaking wet. America, you were a child once. Yup. And I believe that I'm correct in saying that you did grow up in this country. I mean, grow up is a loose term, but yeah. And and would, would I be remiss in saying that you took classes in school, in elementary and middle school, that taught you about other places in the world and how our place in the world is separated from those other places by apocalyptically large bodies of water. That would be correct. And would you, as the extraordinarily intelligent seven-year-old you were when you were seven years of age, believe that two evil motherfuckers from England could drive across the Atlantic Ocean unassisted in a car you saw destroyed moments earlier and not perish. As I was reading about two years above my grade level, actually, no, a middle school reading level, um, probably not. So when you saw, with your own childlike eyes, these two ancient fucks get out of the car like ghost mimes with makeup askew, horrible teeth, and seaweed for hair, get out of a car that then emptied hundreds of gallons of water into the street from a car with a windshield that, frankly, didn't exist anymore, 
because the roof of the car was below the dashboard of the car because it was crushed by a peach the size of a house. Did you think, oh yes, this makes sense? I believe in the framework of the story that has been established, yes. So you as a seven-year-old did copious amounts of drugs. Excellent, great, no questions further. Your Honor, I rest my case. This is the most fucking insane thing I've ever seen. Uh, from the moment the car drove up, I just wrote, no. <laughs> no. No. Uh, listen, the movie begs on its hands and knees for you to suspend as much disbelief as you can. It even goes so far as to make part of the movie animated with clay so that you would suspend disbelief so that they could tell you the most preposterous story ever contrived by one sick fuck in England. And I can't. I, I can't, okay? I'll give you bugs the size of people. I'll give you magic that makes a peach the size of a two-story house in these United States. In no world will I accept that the two haggard, barely able to move, scam artist, abusive women from England in the house on the hill were not A, killed by the peach as it crushed the car they were inside, that not only were they not killed, but they then drove the car, which wouldn't start, first of all, but it then somehow, after being crushed by a peach the size of a house, did in fact start that they then drove it directly into the ocean across the whole Atlantic Ocean, only to arrive miraculously on the streets of New York City. And then... At the exact same time that James arrives in New York City. Which implies they drove it in three days. For that is as much time as we were shown upon the journey of the boy within the peach. It is a crime upon my eyes. You were going to say, and then... And then what? It's only bullshit. You, the movie wishes so desperately that I would believe that could happen. Or that I would even accept that that would happen. And I cannot. I will not stand here as an audience member, whether a man or a boy, and believe for one moment one moment that they could possibly arrive at the same time that James Selt down from the giant beach from being bailed on the Empire State Building, having just lost all of his friends to the seagulls, who are man-sized bugs, only then to be assailed by these same women who demand the authorities who are New York City policemen hand over the boy to them. And upon asking for proof, 
that the peach is in fact theirs, they show a picture of them with a clearly fabricated peach. No, it's the same picture that was taken of them in front of the peach by that photographer man. How did it survive in Miriam Margulies' bosom? The power of boobs? Not even hers could protect that piece of paper from the entire Atlantic Ocean! I got nothing. They try to take the boys. They try to take the boy. And the policeman won't let them. And so they steal firemen's axes. And assault the car, the flatbed truck that the peach is resting on. In attempts to kill James, mind you. These are bad people. And the saviors of the day. Coming down from the heavens above. Are his family. Are six human-sized bugs. Speaking in a variety of accents. Wearing clothes for people. And the citizens of New York do not immediately kill them. No guns are drawn. The citizens do not scream. They do not run in fear. This is some aliens ending the world type shit. And no reaction could possibly measure up to what I wanted. They celebrate and ask if they can eat the peach. And the centipede tells the children of New York that the peach will not last forever. So now children eat. Eat plenty. Fill yourselves with the fruit of the strange magical peach that grew from the dead tree by the house on the hill. That had a brief stint as a claymation star. And was briefly a hovercraft in the Arctic. And also functions as a house. Eat it. And enjoy. And the New Yorkers embrace the bugs. And place the pit of the peach in Central Park. Where James will live. And his only job from now on as a child. An orphan, mind you. I had notes about how he was going to be a child in the foster system of early New York City. But no. He will instead be a sideshow character. Who must tell his story to anyone who walks by. And he gets to live with his strange bug friends. In a pit of a beach that is the size of a one-story house. In New York City in Central Park. I have destroyed my voice. This episode is over. I'm in hell. It's a happy ending. A very happy ending. I'm not happy! Thank you for tuning into this episode of City Wave Cinema. It was a little more unhinged 
than I thought it was going to be. I didn't realize that James would be so affected by this movie. Um, Our next movie... Three and a half out of ten. ...will be uh, our first DCOM. For those of you who don't speak millennial, that's a Disney Channel original movie. Um, or it will be next time it'll be Xenon, which is one of my other favorite childhood movies, but doesn't give me any trauma. So, hopefully it'll be better. Maybe. Doubt it. 